Glad you're all here. Uh, this morning, our topic will be on the omniscience of God, his all-knowing omniscience. So before we get started, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we um, are just so privileged to be here this morning, Father. We thank you for allowing us to gather together um, to learn more about you, Lord, in this study. Uh, it's been so rich. And Lord, as we um, learn of your omniscience this morning, Father, and um, we just pray, Lord, that we would be edified uh, in, in knowing more about you, Lord, that would cause us to, to praise you even more. Father, we love you. Uh, bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When Ann Hasseltine was 20 years old, her parents lodged four young ministerial students who were visiting their church. These students were volunteering to be lifetime foreign missionaries. Among them was a young man named Adoniram Judson. Judson took the opportunity to strike up a friendship with Ann, and one month later, he wrote a formal letter to Ann's father asking for permission to court his daughter in hopes of making her his wife. We are told that Adoniram's letter reached Ann's father while working here at Bradford College. Knowing he was headed to the foreign mission field, Adoniram fashioned his request in a unique way. He wrote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, to expose her to every kind of distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Amazingly, her father granted him permission. Many in the churches disapproved of sending a woman into a dangerous environment. Refusing to be discouraged, Anne wrote in her journal at this time, when I get near to God and discern the excellence of the character of the Lord Jesus and especially his power and willingness to save, I feel desirous that the whole world should become acquainted with this savior. When Anne was 22, she married Adoniram and they sailed for India. The young couple arrived nearly four months later, but were prevented from going ashore due to local political complications. Instead of returning home, the Judsons decided to labor in the nearby country of Burma. Life was hard for Anne. Adoniram was her only Christian companion, and he was often away on extended preaching tours. Their firstborn son died when he was only seven months old, and evangelism was proving difficult. The Burmese people were unresponsive. Anne described them as unconvinced by arguments and unmoved by love. Six years passed before they saw their first Burmese convert. 
We are at the First Baptist Church of Salem, Massachusetts to continue our story of Ann Judson. After leaving America, Adoniram and Ann changed their views on baptism through their study of the scriptures. As a consequence, this church undertook to support them. Behind me is a window commemorating their mission. After nearly a decade in Burma, Anne was dangerously ill and was sent back to America. In spite of her doctor's warnings and the rising threat of war in Burma, Anne returned to the mission field as quickly as she could. A year after her return, the British-Burmese War broke out. Adoniram was falsely accused of being a British spy and taken to prison. He was interrogated and left hanging in irons. Anne took the manuscript of his Burmese translation of the New Testament and buried it in the yard behind their hut. Later, she brought it to Adoniram in prison, hidden in his pillow. If it had been found, ten years of work would have been destroyed. Anne, now pregnant, bribed the guard to allow him to receive medical attention. After seven months, Adoniram was transferred to what was called death prison. Anne, with their newborn daughter Maria, followed him. She was all that stood between her husband and death. She begged every member of the government to free him. During this time, Anne barely had enough food for herself and her child, but she went without in order to feed Adoniram. She lived in slave-like conditions in the corner of a storeroom in the jailer's house. This continued for two years. When Adoniram was finally released, he found Anne. He was shocked. She was laying on a bed, head shaved, face pale, and her body shrunken to the last degree of emaciation. There lay the devoted wife who had followed him so faithfully from prison to prison, giving up all to keep him alive. Adoniram moved Anne to the governor's house, where she began slowly to recover. We're in the Salem Sound, the very place from which Anne and her husband set sail for India in 1812 to conclude our consideration of her life. With the war ending, the Judsons returned to their missionary home only to find it in ruins. They decided to focus their efforts in the now British-controlled areas of Burma, where they had freedom to evangelize. Three days after relocating to their new home, Adoniram was called away to help the British in their negotiations with the Burmese government. The trip took much longer than expected, and five months after he left, Adoniram received a letter which read, Mrs. Judson is no more. Anne had died a month earlier, on the 24th of October, 1826. She was 37 years old. Their daughter Maria died shortly afterwards. Due in part to Anne's persistence and courage, Adoniram Judson lived to continue his work. The first Burmese church multiplied into 100 churches during his lifetime. But she did more than keep Adoniram alive. Anne Judson possessed that rare combination of spiritual depth and literary skill. She contributed to the translation of the Burmese Bible. She wrote a Burmese catechism. She also was the first person to translate portions of the Bible into the Thai language. She began a school for Burmese girls and took in orphans. Anne laid down her life for the cause of Christ in Burma. How did Anne Judson endure? Let me give you two quotes from her own writings. During some of the hardest moments, she wrote, every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy. And on another day, she explained, this is the reward of all our exertions. Lo, 
I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Anne's understanding of God as both the ruler and reward of his people sustained her throughout her life. This week, you will be studying the character of the one God who is both ruler and reward of his people. This week you've been considering the infinite knowledge of God and the skillful application of that knowledge, which we call wisdom. Now we want to end the week by looking at that knowledge and wisdom as it's displayed in a very unexpected place. And for that, we're going to turn again to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And at the end of the second chapter, Paul explains that the gospel has greatly altered the condition of Gentile believers. Listen to what he says in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now that theme moved Paul to think of the bigger picture, what God was doing through the saving work of Christ. And Paul puts everything now in chapter 3, even the fact that he's in prison, and he puts it all into the larger context. And he tells the Ephesians that this is all designed by God to be a display of his manifold wisdom. Listen to what he writes in chapter 3 and verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's quite a passage. There's a lot packed in there. So let's just simplify it. Paul says that he was set apart and he was equipped to do one task, to preach the riches of Christ, especially to the Gentiles. And in doing this, he was actually part of the unfolding, of the unveiling of a mystery of God's love, which had been hidden in God to previous generations. This unveiling of God's great plans for Jews and Gentiles brought together in the rescue of Jesus Christ, this is the display of God's multi-splendored wisdom. Well, before we consider the wisdom of God in this display, there are some preliminary questions we want to ask. So here's the first. What kind of wisdom does Paul say we're viewing? Well, it's the wisdom of God, but he gives a special description here. It is a wisdom that is manifold. The Greek adjective that Paul uses is found nowhere else in the New Testament, but it does show up in other ancient Greek writings, and that helps us to get an idea of what a first century Greek or a Jew would have thought when they heard this word. One way this word was used was to describe the many colors of a bouquet of wildflowers. The point that Paul is making is this. The wisdom that we see in God's work of redemption is not merely deep or high or great and wide. 
It is impressive for its numerous aspects, its extraordinary diversity, and yet a beautiful harmony of all parts. So, as God works through the gospel, it is a multi-splendored wisdom that we're viewing. Second question, where, where are we viewing it? The wisdom of God is being displayed, strangely, in His work in the church. Not the church in heaven, but the church on earth. The church is the canvas that God will use to paint a portrait of this multi-splendored wisdom. The church is the billboard, and all that drive by can see. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? God has given believers an extraordinary honor. The imperfect church with imperfect Christians is going to be the display of perfect wisdom. Now, I don't think we would have a hard time agreeing that the multi-splendored wisdom of God is clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ or the labors of Jesus Christ. But it is difficult to see why God would choose the flawed church, the church on earth, the church militant, the church that's surrounded by enemies on the outside and struggling with enemies within. All you have to do is stop and you read Paul's letters, and you see how many times he must stop in his explanation of the glories of Christ and deal with problems. There's wrong thinking. There's wrong living. You've got to repent and turn back. Yet Paul is the one that writes to the Ephesians that the great arena in which God will unveil his infinite wisdom is the church. Well, that's the second question. Third question, to whom is the lesson given? Who's being taught by God? The wisdom is being displayed to the angelic hosts. Peter talks about this. He says, the saving works of Christ in the New Testament, they were told to us in the Old Testament, but the prophets yearned, they searched, they tried to understand, is God talking to us? Is he talking about a further time? Really, while they were laboring, they were laboring for the benefit of the new covenant believer. And then Peter says this, these are things which angels desire to look into. It's amazing when you consider that it's the angels that are viewing the glory of God's wisdom, not by looking directly at God on the throne, so to speak, but by looking down into the flawed church where God is at work. Think of it, the angels have viewed the glory of God's wisdom in heaven. They have viewed his attributes. They've surrounded his throne. They've never had their vision clouded by the distance of sin. They have held his perfections before their eyes for millennia, thousands of years, beholding the one who clothes himself in an unapproachable light. They have viewed God's wisdom in creation and providence. They saw him call all things into existence from nothing, and then to fashion all matter perfectly through his wisdom so that it is exactly as he desires it to be. They watched him sustain it each moment. They have seen him rule it perfectly even though humanity rages against him. Yet it's not in heaven and it's not in creation or the sustaining or the ruling. Paul says... That there are aspects of the wisdom of God, this multi-splendored wisdom that no angel can really understand until they turn their eye to what God is doing in a Christian 
on planet Earth. So our task together today is simple, but it's, it's quite lofty. It's a very ambitious task. We want to join the angelic host, and we want to gaze at the multi-splendored wisdom of God as it's seen with Him working in His church. Three things we'll consider, three aspects of the redemptive work of God in the church that show His wisdom. First, whom God chooses to save. Second, how God chooses to save. And third, why God chooses to save. And all three of these give us some picture of the wisdom of God. So first, whom? Think of those that God chose to be the recipients of this unexpected love. Whom he saves is a very extraordinary, large part of the picture of his wisdom. When you think of an artist, you think of a person that has certain skills and they go to the art store and they buy the materials, the mediums they, they want to use to create a work of art. But if you've ever been in those art stores, the real ones, that stuff's expensive. They use the best stuff. But I'm impressed when a man can go to a junk pile, to a trash heap, and he digs around in it for a day and he throws a bunch of stuff in the back of his truck and he goes home with it. And after he's finished with it, he's taken junk and he's created something extraordinary, something beautiful from it. The wisdom of God shines in a peculiar way when we see who it is he's working with. In chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says this, He, God, chose us. He, us. Just take those two parties. He you know who God is. We've been studying Him. You've considered Him. He is the Most High, transcending all other beings. He cannot be comprehended. He is incomparable. He is self-existing, self-sustaining. He is perfect in every way, infinite, immutable. This God, He, and then on the other side, you. Now, if you're a believer, then you do in some measure know yourself, don't you? You know what other people don't know. You know things about yourself that you wish you didn't know. Things that if other people knew, they wouldn't be your friend. He. Us. Now, what word would you put between those two parties? Well, there are a lot of appropriate words that we could think of. But the word that God uses in Ephesians is quite shocking. And it shows His wisdom. He chose us. All of humanity is a wretched mess. And just think of it. There is the strange combination of utter moral poverty that you see everywhere. And yet, an inexplicable, inexcusable pride that we think we don't need him. And if we believe that he exists, and we believe that he has some demands on our life, we tell him to just sit back and wait, and if he just gives us a moment, we'll fix ourselves. We use his words as a ladder to climb up to him. We use his worship as a way to make ourselves beautiful. So needy and yet so unwilling to come as beggars to this king. In the book of Ephesians, Paul describes the human condition. Think of it. He describes the location. Spiritually, where do you live? Well, all of us used to live, what chapter 2 says, far away. He came and preached peace to you who were where? Who were far off or far away. Spiritually distant from God. Paul gives some details earlier in that same chapter in verse 11 and 12 when he said, Therefore remember that you, formerly Gentiles, you were at that time 
listen to these words, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and therefore having no hope and without God in the world. That was your location. Separate from Christ, excluded from Israel, and strangers to every Old Testament hope. So, we lived in a place, and you could have written on the spiritual address in front of your home, this is a place with no hope, this is a place without God. We were strangers and foreigners, without God and without hope. That's where we lived. Paul describes the spiritual condition. We were spiritually dead, he says in chapter 2, verse 1. That is, that we were unresponsive to the realities of God. Not that we didn't do anything. We did a lot. We did a lot that we are ashamed of now. But when it came to God, we were as unresponsive as a corpse. And yet, because of sin's blinding quality, we were insensible to it. We didn't feel, we didn't hear, we didn't see, we didn't yearn for what was right, and we didn't know. In chapter 5, he says, you were darkness. It's not just that we lived in a dark place. It's that on the inside of the soul, alienated from God, there was nothing but the confusion and fear and despair that comes when you don't know your creator. Darkness within. That was the spiritual condition, dead and dark. And then there was a lifestyle. When you live in a certain place spiritually, and you have a certain spiritual condition. Well, there is a certain lifestyle that's to be expected. And so in chapter 2, he describes it. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, he says, under the influence of the prince of this world, Satan. Then he says this, You lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and you were by nature... Children of wrath, even as the rest. You were just like everyone else. Your inheritance that you could have expected at that point was wrath. In chapter 4, verse 18, Paul's describing the way that the unbeliever lives. And he tells the Christian, don't go back to living that way. Listen to the description. See if you recognize it. Being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity, listen, with greediness. It's as if we can't get enough of the poison. We can't get enough of death. We hunger for more. Do you realize that when Paul writes those passages, he is describing the person that God uses as a canvas to display his wisdom. He has passed over the fallen angels, one sin, one rebellion, forever judged. And he has sought out men and women and children from Adam's sinful, rebellious race. It's a great deal of wisdom displayed in that. Second, think of the wisdom demonstrated in how he saved, not just whom he chose to save, but how. Wisdom is displayed in the champion that he chose for us. Everything about your salvation is riding on the choice of a redeemer. Who's going to rescue you? Who's going to be one of you? Who's going to redeem you? Who's going to plead your case? Who's going to carry your guilt? If God's choice is not wise, 
then no matter what the Redeemer attempts to do, he'll fail and you'll have no hope. Everything about our salvation rides upon the wisdom of the Father's choice of a champion for the sinner. The course his choice is the Son. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect chosen, my elect one in whom my soul delights. What a picture. The Father turning to the Son in eternity past before he ever creates anything. And he delights in the Son and he chooses him to be the mediator. He chooses him for our shame, for the mocking, for the death. He chooses him for the redeeming work. Now, election or God's choices that he makes in eternity past without asking any of our opinions, it's a very mysterious doctrine and it often causes people to get angry. God chose Israel, a nation, for himself. He didn't choose everyone. God chooses a people, a bride, to be given to Christ. And it's a very confusing thing to us. But make sure that you're not so proud that you can't admire the wisdom of God. And yet, I want to say that the greater election, the more confusing, the more baffling and befuddling choice is this, that He chose the Son for the humiliation so that He could choose a people who should have been humiliated. He chose them for exaltation. Can you imagine the wisdom that the angels viewed when the Father turned toward the Son and chose Him? When the Son rose from His throne and came to earth to be united to our humanity in the womb of a young girl, Mary. Now, obviously, he must be God to save us. He must have access to the Father to give you access. He must be rich to pay your debt. He must be holy to carry the law perfectly. He must be strong to endure the wrath. But he also must be human, so that everything he does could be attributed to you. If he's not one of us, then he can't represent us. And what he does doesn't affect us. The choice of the champion is a picture of great wisdom. There's also the wisdom displayed in how God chose to make peace with those who were criminals. The criminal is going to be pardoned, perfectly pardoned, with no shame, no memory even in the king's mind of their rebellion. And yet he's going to be pardoned as the king fully upholds the penalty of the law. So Ephesians 1, we read this, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption, the purchase of our freedom. In him we have redemption through his blood, his death, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes this, But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off, do you remember that's where we used to live, you have been brought near, the new address, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And later he talks about uniting Jew and Gentile and bringing both in peace to God. And he says he has put to death the enmity that was in God's law toward the lawbreaker. He put the, to death that enmity at the cross. When you think of the how he made peace between the criminal and himself, think of the wisdom that's seen in the fact that God used at the cross the enemy's most clever schemes. And he turned the enemy's most clever schemes 
and he used them for the most holy purposes. At the cross, the greatest miscarriage of human justice ever, the crucifixion of the Son of God, has become the greatest display of divine justice. Human injustice, yes, divine justice. At the cross, the greatest display of human sin has become the greatest display of divine purity. In Acts 2, Peter says this at Pentecost, Jesus who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's two statements there that are parallel. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. There's the human activity. But before that he says it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. All right? Acts chapter 4, we read this. The apostles say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your, speaking to God, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Strange bed partners, aren't they? To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The multi-splendored wisdom of God is seen in this. That God looks at the wretched hatred, the rebellion against His Son, and He uses all the plans of the enemy to do what He has predetermined to be done, that the Son of God would become the sin bearer and rescue His enemies. How He makes peace between us and God is a great picture of his wisdom. Think of another aspect, how he turns enemies to friends. It's not just positional or legal. It's not just God describing the believer now as being pardoned or justified. There's a change within us. And it comes because God places his spirit in the sinner and by the spirit unites the sinner to Christ. And this union changes everything about us. Listen to what Paul says and notice the phrases in Christ, through Christ, with Christ. In chapter 1 verse 5, in love God predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to himself. What a picture of the wisdom of God. In eternity past, he predetermines all events necessary to bring the sinner from a position of alien and stranger to an adopted child. Through Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read a, a long list of these things. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For... By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Do you see? Do you hear the wisdom of God? Hear the enemies of God, and now they're brought close. How close? Adopted from Death to life, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, given this grace, and it's received by faith, not by their good works. And they're given a new life, 
They have been created beforehand. This life has been fashioned by God for obedience. But there's more. Think of the wisdom of God seen in how he guarantees that everyone that he chooses and makes peace with and alters their condition, he makes sure that they all arrive safely. It's not very impressive wisdom. If God chooses Christ, purchases sinners, brings them to himself, makes them his children, adopts them, and then somewhere along the path the enemy snatches them and he loses them. But the wisdom of God is seen in the fact that every single believer makes it. Or as Christ says in John 6, all that the Father has given to me, I will raise them up on the last day. I won't leave one behind. The Christian lives his or whole life in the most hostile environment with enough enemies on the inside to derail their hopes. But we see the wisdom of God and that he keeps each one safe. In Ephesians, we read this in chapter 1, verse 13. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, two pictures there, very simple. The Spirit is like a seal on an envelope. No one has a right to tamper with the Christian soul. It belongs to Christ. No one can break the seal but the king. You're safe. The spirit is the down payment or the earnest. He is the guarantee that the full payment is coming. What the Christian experiences daily of the work of the spirit within is not just a present joy. It is the foretaste of what is coming in full. And both of these are necessary to keep the sinner saved. If you think of more... If you think also of the changes that occur in the Christian life, you see the multi-splendored wisdom of God. In chapter 4, 5, and 6, quickly we, we see things like this. When those who once were God's enemies, living for themselves, suddenly walk worthy of His calling, in humility, gentleness, patience, love, doing everything, laying down their rights to maintain the spiritual unity that Christ has created in His church... Then you see the multi-splendored wisdom of God. When they are no longer living like they used to in spiritual darkness and confusion, deceit, anger, greed and theft, but now they work hard so they have money to share, they put away their anger, they speak truth and love to each other, instead of bitterness they are kind, tender-hearted and forgiving, then you see the multi-splendored wisdom of God. When marriages are transformed, so that husbands love sacrificially like Christ loved the church and wives are happy to entrust themselves to the leadership of their husband as the church trusts Christ. When parents raise children in a way that reflects God's fatherhood and children honor parents for love of Jesus Christ, then you see the multi-splendored wisdom of God. When Christian employees work well with a whole heart, sincerely, not to score points in the eyes of the boss, Paul says, but to please their Savior. Then you see the multi-splendored wisdom of God in the church. Why does he do it? He predestined us to adoption. Chapter 1, verse 5. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12. He gave us this salvation, this inheritance, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. 
Verse 13, He sealed us by the Spirit to the praise of His glory. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, He made us alive, raised us with Christ, seated us with Christ, so that He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Everywhere you look, the imperfect life of the church, behind all of that is the manifold wisdom of God for His glory. Very simple test for us today. Do you see the stuff angels see when you look at the gospel labors of Christ? When you gather with other believers on Sunday? When you see them through the week? True Christians, imperfect, yes, stumbling sometimes, running quickly sometimes. Do you see the multi-splendored wisdom of your God? What an honor, Christian. Don't take it lightly. Your common life as you walk with Him is made to be the most uncommon mirror of an infinite wisdom. Let's pray. God, we pray that your wisdom would be seen in the simple changes in our lives, in the satisfaction and the happiness and the trust and peace, in the purity, God, and in the consistency, the very things that we have nothing, nothing to accomplish. God, we cannot be that kind of people apart from the wisdom that belongs to you. And so we ask, God, that you would continue your work in your church all across this tiny globe that the angels might see something of your wisdom that they've never seen before. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The truth of God's omniscience ought to be carried with us into the recesses of our hearts, into every area of life where we go, and regularly reminding ourselves, this, this, this is who my God is. Uh, one of his names in the Old Testament is El-Roi, E-L-R-O-I, the God who sees just who he is. The Bible repeatedly describes to us God's omniscience. The psalmist said, think about this phrase, great is the Lord, abundant in strength, Psalm 147, verse 5 says, His understanding is infinite. Think about that. God knows everything about everything all the time. His understanding is infinite. That's what we mean when we say God is omniscient. God's omniscience is one of those truths that belong to the very core of the Christian faith. It's confessed, it's acknowledged, but sadly, we do not live as we ought in the light of it. One of the areas where we see modern day Christianity, the professed church, not accepting the reality of God's omniscience is assuming that somehow he didn't know what we needed when he only gave us the scriptures, we somehow unfortunately too often assume that the scriptures are insufficient. And what we're really saying is not just that God didn't know best or doesn't know best, but that we know better than him when we attempt to add to 
what the scriptures say with regard to how we approach him, with regard to how we structure church, how we respond, how we do missions. All of those things in our lives should be structured based on what the scriptures say. And when we get away from doing what the word of God says, we are saying, in essence, God does not know everything. He does not know best. We, as humans, know better. Well, for the Christian, nothing could be better than being known by God. Uh, in fact, the thing that no one wants to hear God say is, I never knew you. And Jesus said he's going to say that to people. That's interesting for us to try to wrap our minds around how God can be all-knowing, and then we hear Jesus, the God-man, say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not that he doesn't know about those who aren't his, but there isn't a kindred relationship. It is him distancing himself because there's no relational knowledge of those people. While at the same time, there are other places in Scripture that mention that God forgets some things. So how can an all-knowing God forget anything? But he himself says, I will remember your sins no more. What a glorious truth that this all-knowing God who knows every one of our sins in order that they might be covered by the blood of Jesus has also promised to practice what Sharnock called judicial forgetfulness and throw the sins, as it were, behind his back. He doesn't have a problem with his memory, but he's, he's willfully chosen to forget those sins that we've committed so that we are treated as righteous and we're welcomed into his presence both now and forever. God's people are so comforted by being that we're known by God in that intimate way and that in addition to his omniscience, we have a special relationship with him as his children. And uh, lost people are only known in an exposing way. He knows all things. Psalm 139 probably is one of the most wonderful um, uh, part poetic, part narrative expositions of the God who knows all things. Where, where can I flee from your spirit? Uh, you know my going out and my coming in. And that's just deeply pleasurable and delightful for a Christian. It's also disturbing because God sees and knows the innermost thoughts and the intents of our hearts, and that's humbling. That's at times deeply humbling. But there is something exquisitely pleasurable because this God who knows every single aspect of who I am and what I am has chosen to love me and will never let me go. precious truth that is amen that we have confidence in what christ did for us let's pray together <clears throat> gracious heavenly father god we're in awe of you um, your omniscience your omnipotence father we confess that apart from you lord we could do nothing we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives lord and uh, that in eternity past father you you chose uh, to set forth 
um, a plan of redemption, Lord, to redeem for yourself a people uh, chosen by you, um, Lord. And um, we're so thankful for that, thankful that um, we are known by you, we are loved by you, not uh, for, apart from anything that we have done. Lord, just uh, because of your grace, um, there's nothing that we can do to earn it, um, but Christ did it all for us on the cross. And we thank you for that. So to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, his son. In Jesus' name, amen.